This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. For those of us in here, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6 will be in chapter 6 and do all of chapter 7 together this morning. As we begin, would you join me in a word of prayer? God, you're holy and set apart. You reign in splendor and majesty. And as your people, we desire to be wholly dependent on you. So, Father, grow us in dependence through meeting us in your word and instructing us. Grow us in dependence through showing your mercy and helping us to see your goodness. And grow us in dependence, stripping away all else that we might run to, so that we would be wholly dependent on you. Pray that you would use the Holy Spirit now, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our word, your word to us, and in your grace you would grow. Amen. We're continuing in Nehemiah. We're going to pick it up at verse 15 of chapter 6. Not many commentators or even preachers put a break in chapter 6, verse 15, but we did because we are rebels and we are individuals. And the reason we did was because we, we wanted to make sure that we had a specific look at what happened in Nehemiah when the wall is finished. In one way of thinking, the whole book so far at least, has been leading up to the moment where the wall is finished. But, but in another way of thinking, and this is what we want you to see, it's the real work that's just getting started. For Nehemiah, who is the central character of this book, he's been given the task by God, from God, to oversee the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. And while that was the direction of the project, the point of the project was never the wall at all. It was never the city. The point wasn't even the temple. The point was always for Nehemiah and from God, the people. In Acts chapter 7, knowing that he's about to be killed for his faith in Christ, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, says that God does not dwell in temples built by human hands, but he fills heaven and earth, and, and even those places aren't adequate for them. It just says he fills them up. By the time the Apostle Paul is working out a theology of God's omnipresence in the New Testament, he says that it's not just in the world and in heaven, but it's in the very hearts of people that God dwells. And so for Nehemiah and for the people of Jerusalem, the wall isn't the point. It was always about the hearts of the people. So the wall is done, but now the real work begins. It's a little bit like marriage. I remember the first time I met Holly. I don't remember every detail like she claims to remember of our first meeting, but I can say with 100% certainty, I kind of remember the day. I'll just say that. So Holly and I uh, dated uh, we didn't start to date, I guess, for about 18 months after that. 
Uh, and we had our first date. And I, I think I could tell you I was pretty sure after our first date that I wanted to marry Holly. I was really sure after our second or third date. But it was, it was a little while before we, um, before we got married. And so as we prepared for marriage uh, through dating and then through engagement, uh, I had this idea, this naive idea that we were doing the real work then, that we were dating and we were, and we were engaged, and that's what we were doing to try and get married. And, and I naively thought, you know, sure, relationships take work, but we love each other, we like each other, we're pretty compatible, how hard could this be? It turns out it's quite a bit of work to be married. And let me just pause really quickly. I have a great marriage. Holly and I are solid, we're good. We still love each other more impressively than that. I think we, we still actually like each other. But that doesn't mean that marriage isn't hard work. I look back on that year and a half we spent uh, dating and engaged and realized that that was the easy part. That's when things are easy. And at the time, I, I thought that's what I was doing was building for marriage. But what I learned is when we got married, that's when we actually have to get to work. So what I want to do is look at these verses in Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 15, and I just want to talk about two related things, two related things. Number one, biblically, what should our priorities be? What is the real work? And number two, how do we set ourselves up to pursue those priorities? How do we make sure we're going to do the work? So what should the real work be? And how do we set ourselves up to make sure we keep focused on that? So Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 15, I'm going to read a little bit. I'll stop. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So really quickly, just a couple of ideas. First, the work on the wall happened very quickly. 52 days to do this was remarkable. In fact, Nehemiah clearly says that the only way such a work was accomplished at all was because of God's hand. And that's the second thing. Because it's obvious that, that God was with his people, members of other nations who had moved into the land of Judah during the time of exile, they began to worry. Now, the term translated be afraid may be a little strong. It's probably more along the lines of being impressed by the building and then concerned. Concerned is probably a better term about what it may mean for them. And the reason they're concerned is because cities have an overpowering influence on a region. And that, that's still true. Uh, even though we're not in Chicago here, we're very much impacted by what's happening there because it, it, it's a leader of our geographic region. And so after the exile of the Israelites, what happened, and it's probably the exile was probably the most prominent members of society, the, the, the cultural and social elites, so the wealthy people, the leaders, the priests, the uh, government officials, they were the ones taken away, but a lot of the peasants were left there in the land of Judah. They remained there, and then people from other groups, other nation states, began to move in. 
And then the new group formed a kind of a society. There was a new type of community that arose around Jerusalem during the time of the exile. Now, we're going to see Ezra, who is a, a priest or a teacher, we're going to see his name next week. What he had done already is he had led a previous return of a large group, and his mission was to begin to establish, teach the people, and get worship in the way that God had commanded it going in the temple again. So he was there to focus on holiness or, or purity of the people. And one of the things he did, because this new society had kind of risen up, there's a new way of doing things, there's new kind of worship that was happening, he insisted, he started by insisting that people only worship Yahweh, the, the true God. And he drove out from the city and from the land and from the place of the temple all of those who had married people outside of the nation. And that was not a racial thing, it was not an ethnic thing. He knew that if there were families who were going to be confused about what it meant to worship God, or had confusion even within the family, it wasn't going to work in founding a covenant community of believers, trying to get them to stand up, just get up off the ground after decades of laying flat on their backs. He needed purity among the people, holiness among the people. It's very countercultural. But this is biblically thinking through priorities, through our work. This is where we should start. It should start among the people of God. We live in a, a highly individualistic, almost determinately so, society. People love their individual freedoms. They love their individuality. Personal responsibility being all over the Bible, it is. There, you, there is no doubt that biblically you have a personal responsibility before the Lord and before other people, and you are your own person. But biblically, worship, priorities, work is always set among and starts with the covenant community of God. Because even though personal responsibility is there, if you're only out for, for number one, yourself, you will not best be able to serve, come alongside beside others, and your heart will become cold and selfish and you will turn inward. Things will not be rightly ordered when you're looking out for yourself first. And so biblically, the covenant community is always where we start to form our priorities. Jesus said, when there's a lot to worry about, Jesus said, when there's a lot of cares of the world, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, look for what God is doing. Seek the things of God among the people of God. Make holiness and righteousness and the things of God your priorities, and, and all the other things will sort themselves out underneath that. So this is where we start among the covenant community of the people of God. We need, and we, that's what Nehemiah is going to do here. So let me keep going a little bit, and I'll explain along the way. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. 
also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, this is a callback to the first half of chapter 6 where Tobiah is part of a plot to distract and discredit Nehemiah. Just remind us that, that those things won't stop for long. In fact, when we're seeking to do the will of God, there will be those who want to hinder us from doing that. It's ironic this man Tobiah is the one doing this. He's almost certainly a Jew. He should have been working with Nehemiah, not against him. But his family, the reason he's there is his family was not part of the, probably not part of the deportation. Uh, but instead of staying, living in the land and staying faithful to God, he was one of these people who began worshiping in pagan ways, pagan gods, pagan ceremonies. And so now he can't be part of the covenant community anymore because he is defiled himself. And so all he can do is discredit the work of God. All right, we'll keep going. Chapter 7. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let, the gates, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors." Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, I'm, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to read you the next 67 verses, which are almost entirely just a list of names. If you think that's because I don't think they're valuable or I'm afraid, I would just reference you to chapter 3 when I read all of that chapter, which is 72 names out loud, and we preached on that. Now this here, in chapter 7, is the exact same list that's given in Ezra, the preceding book. Really, if you're reading about Nehemiah, you should probably think of Ezra and Nehemiah as one unit. So in Ezra 2, the same list appears. And so if you're in your Bible reading plan, you're just intently looking at every one of those names, as I'm sure you do, when you come to the long list of names in the Bible reading plans, I'm sure you just really give good attention to every single one of those names, if you're thinking, wow, this list looks really familiar, it's because you just read it one book before. But instead of doing that, what I want to do is I just want to point out a couple of words, a couple of actions of Nehemiah's that show us what his priorities were and then how he went about pursuing them. So what his priorities were and how he went about pursuing them, we learn a lot from this. Twice, in the first few verses of chapter 7, it says that Nehemiah appointed people. He appointed first guards to keep the city safe, and second, he appointed Levites or priests, and then singers to lead the people in worship. And then the rest of those names are people who had come back with Ezra but weren't yet living in Jerusalem. They were living in their houses or in little tiny villages near the city, but they were spread out, and because of that, the people were separated, not just geographically. Uh, but from one another in the community. 
If there's going to be a community of God that worships together and that supports one another and that cares for one another, the best way to do that, especially pre-phone, pre-car, is to have everyone as close together as possible. I know that some of you come from farther away, and I'm glad for everybody who's here. But I think we can all see that even with technology, even with the the modern means that we have available, the best way that we can care for one another, the best way that we can express love for one another in the covenant community is by being together. On a really practical level, it's tough to be a tight-knit group of people if we're not together. And, And the farther you live from a place, the more effort and intentionality it takes to be there. And even sometimes those efforts aren't enough. And so Nehemiah's plan is to get the people together, to live in the city together so that they might grow in their community and out of their community might grow the right worship that God has commanded. And so he plans first, he needs to fortify the city. It has to be made safe so that when the people come back to live there, it's, it's ready for them. But look at what he doesn't do. So first, we need guards. We need to make sure it's a safe place to live or nobody's going to live there. But look at what he doesn't do after that. He's governor, but you're actually barely going to hear his name for the rest of the book. In fact, I think only three times more in this book do we actually hear what Nehemiah is doing. From this point on, it's a story about other people. So he doesn't set up a government. He doesn't get a city council going. Once it's practical for people to live, there are walls and guards. That's what he's got so far. We've got walls, we've got people to watch. He appoints priests to begin to teach and to lead in worship. That's his first move. Before anything else in society, we need spiritual leaders to guide the people, to instruct the people and teach the people. So the same way they rebuilt the wall was going to be the way that they lived in the city. They were going to prioritize God and they were going to be dependent on him. And that's our priority as well. Biblically, what should our priority be? What's our work as Christian people? It's to live a life dependent on God. Now here's how that's different from what you'll hear. We believe we must live a life with further and more dependence on God. You'll hear people say that they want to live a life further and less dependent on anyone or anything else. They want to be self-sufficient. You'll hear people say that their priority in life should be freedom. Nobody else can tell me what to do. You'll hear it said that your priority in life should be learning to embrace yourself, flaws and all, to live deeply satisfied with yourself just the way that you are. You'll hear people say that whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to make your creed or your code, as long as you just live authentically to that, you're living the life that you should be living. That's what we're told. Freedom. Self-satisfaction. Doing what we think is right as long as we're sincere. But God's people have never lived that way. 
When God brought people up out of Egypt and he gave them the law, the first one that he gave them was to be sure and say, don't put anything before me, including yourselves. God comes first. When the people of Israel wanted a king so they could be like other nations, God had offered to be their king. He said, I want to be your king. And they said, no, give us a regular king like the other nations. God said, this isn't going to go well from you. You will have a king who will take advantage of you. You will have a king who will take from you. But they just said, give us one anyways. And so he gave them one. And then Jeremiah said, our own hearts are more deceitful than anything else we'll find in the whole world. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can trust it? You will hear. You need freedom. You will hear you need to be okay with yourself. You will hear just do whatever you think is right. But God says you need to put me first. Every time you ever try to put yourself first, you fall and you fail. When you actually do put God first, when you seek him first, you begin to see that it's actually all of those other things that are going to enslave you. Making something else your king, finding your worth in something else, putting your value in it, finding your hope in it, that whatever it else will ultimately disappoint you. You will become enslaved to it because you will give too much of yourself over to trying to let it fulfill you. Folks, Christians have never done well asking for a king. And hear me well on this. Every time we've ever set somebody in that kind of place, we've made somebody a king, we just said, this is who we want for all the things that we should want from God. It has always, and I mean always, and I'm happy to be proven wrong. If you have an example of a time in the history of humanity when we have tried to put somebody up where God alone should be our king, Every time that person fails us, and we look foolish and we actually suffer because of it. It also taints the purity of our witness because we have to make compromise after compromise. And we're really prone to forgetting who the real king is when we try to set up one on earth. Don't ask for a king, God's our king. So then if our priority should be growing in dependence on God, how do we do that? How do we actively grow in giving more of ourselves over to him and giving him more rule and reign in our lives and making him our king? Not looking to the powers and the things and the systems of this world. Let me just give you three ways. That's not because that's a magic number, but because this is just all I think we have time for. Three ways to set our priority and grow our dependence on God. Number one, grow your dependence on God through making worship a priority. Grow your dependence on God by making worship a priority. The first thing that Nehemiah did was make sure that the priests were in place. It's practical and it's strategic. If people are going to move there and the purpose is to begin by obeying God, by offering the type of worship in the way and in the place that he has commanded, that needs to start right from the beginning. 
It needs to be of first and utmost importance. Now, we don't have Levites anymore. We have uh, other leaders, nobody that stands in the place of a priest, because Jesus alone is our high priest and advocate, but we do have pastor elders. Biblically, that's the same role, pastor and elder. That's why I say pastor elders. They're given to shepherd the people, they're given to oversee the church, and they're given to teach. And around the temple, the, the Levites made their living that way, and, and we're not set up like that, which is actually fine. I think it's biblical that we would not have a group made up entirely of professional pastor elders who make their full-time work the work of the church. We should have not only some, but even a majority of men who are not making their full-time employment from the life of the church, but it's okay that we have a few. It is also biblical that we should pay those who are doing the full-time work of ministry. So in a lot of ways, our elders are going to do exactly what Nehemiah wanted the Levites to do. We're going to lead our church in worship. And by lead, I, I don't mean that we'll do everything or be up front all the time. I, I, I also mean that we will often imperfectly and with numerous evident flaws show you our weaknesses, but we will, even among those flaws, call our church to be a worshiping community. And we will prioritize a godly, qualified eldership. I love the many ministries of our church. We run programs and we do a lot of other things. But if we lack strong elders, it will have a trickle-down effect. And so I will always contend for a fully functioning elder council before we do anything else. That needs to be our highest aim is to make sure that group is solid because it will have an effect like Nehemiah knew it would on the entire community. If, the, if we can get the Levites instructing the people and leading the people in a, to be a worshiping community, other things will fall into place. The same will be true of our church. If we have good, strong, qualified elder group, and we do, by God's grace, they're a gift to our church, it will have a great effect on the rest of our ministry. So set your priority, set our priority through worship. I'm going to actually talk about worship in the covenant community in number three, but let's do number two first. Second way to grow in dependence on, on, in God is by setting our priorities on walking in humility. Walking in humility. If you read this book, Nehemiah is an incredibly humble leader. He doesn't take credit for his bold vision. He's a strong leader, but he never takes credit. He doesn't tout his organizational skills. At every turn, he gives glory to God, recognizing that God could have used anybody to do this work. Twice, actually, it says here in just these verses we've read, it was God who did these things. Chapter 6, verse 16, he says that the people recognized that it was God who was with them. He actually says it was God who helped them, but it's clear from the rest of Nehemiah that he doesn't see God as just an ancillary helper. He sees God as the one who started it, the one who did the work, and the one who finished everything that happened so far. And then also, again in chapter 7, he says, and God put it in my heart to do these things. Humility is critical for dependence because without humility... Everything else will be out of order, and with it, everything else will be as it should be. As parents, we're dealing with a lot of behavior and instruction and discipline issues right now. And, and outside of, of just the 
usual things that kids do. They get tired. They get hungry. They, they don't, they're not getting what they want. What I've noticed with my own kids, and you've probably noticed with yours or others, is that when kids throw tantrums and when they lose control of their emotions, what's happening is they, they're, they're, just, they're telling you things seem to be too big for them. And what they're trying to do is make decisions. They're trying to order their lives in a way that they're, as children, not quite capable of doing yet. And so they're actually looking for mom. They're actually looking for me as their dad with more life experience, with a broader perspective to see what they really need and to do what is really good for them. And the same is true for us. It works best when we trust God to be God. Believing that he is good and believing that nothing happens outside of his will. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We think people, sometimes we call people blessed when they have the kind of family they want, when they have a lot of nice stuff. But God actually says it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. It's, in other words, the humble who are blessed. In two places, the book of James and the book of First Peter, it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2 says that humility is considering others to be more significant than yourself. Do you tout your own accomplishments? Do you try to rule your own life? Do you think you're smarter than everybody else around you and more important? Or do you set first your priority on worship to God, believing that he is a spiritual and heavenly father who knows what's best for you, and you humbly walk as his child. <coughs> Number three, grow in dependence on God by setting your priority on God's people. You grow in dependence on God by setting your priority on God's people. Number one, or first, Prioritize worship and gathering with the church. It's odd. The phrase preaching to the choir really applies to the people who made it out an hour early on the time change morning. But prioritize worship among God's people. Have you noticed this? That when you come to be among God's people, your perspective is helped and shaped and formed. Do you leave this place with a bigger view of God and a greater thankfulness to him that you lack? This is a good weekly check-in for us because the longer we're outside of the community of faith, the longer we're away from a worshiping community, the more we often forget who we serve and what our first priorities are and what we should be doing to seek first the kingdom of heaven. So prioritize worship and gathering with the church. I understand that you can't be here every Sunday. But folks, let me, let me just throw this out there. Among our membership last year, our average Sunday attendance among members was about 35 Sundays a year. Among our regular attenders, it was about 24, 25 Sundays a year, which is about half. Uh, I just want to lovingly and gently say this, knowing that I'm, I'm gone sometimes. I, I have Sundays that I'm not here. I think we can do a better job of prioritizing the Sunday gathering. I think we can do a better job of making it a priority to be here. And I think we should. 
I think we should make it our habit to be in church on Sunday morning. When you're sick, stay home. Of course, you're going to travel sometimes. But Christians shouldn't be wondering on Saturday night what they're going to be doing on Sunday morning as if there's a range of options and they'll just see what might come up. Be here. Be among the covenant community of God. It won't be a waste of your time. A second thing is love those in the church even when it's difficult. How do you grow in dependence on God? You actually grow in dependence on God by loving other people because it's hard to love other people. Ray Ortland said that Christians are way too often like, like marbles in a bag. We're hard and we have a tough exterior and we're just kind of clang into one another all the time. He said that we should be like a bag of grapes instead, kind of getting all smushed together. It's hard to love other people. It's messy to love other people. But we actually grow in our love for God when we grow in our love for his people. When I say that we should prioritize God's people, am I saying at all that we should ignore non-Christians? No, that is not at all what I'm saying. I, I, think, I think we have many opportunities throughout the week to be with our non-Christian friends, family, and neighbors. I'm saying there's a few times per week, a few extra things uh, you know, in a month or something like that where, where we have opportunities to get together and be encouraged among the people of God, and we should do that. You should absolutely be with your non-Christian neighbors. You should be with your non-Christian friends. You should share the gospel with them. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. So in all of this, I have to ask the question, what if we don't seek first the kingdom of heaven? What do I do when I'm not seeking first God and his righteousness? What about when I don't keep God as my priority? And the truth, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, is none of us, none of us will keep God first all the time. Nobody has except one. In John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's the only person to ever live who can say with all truth and confidence, I have always put God first. I have always done the will of the one who sent me. You and I will fall short of that, and so we must trust in Christ who is obeyed perfectly. We must put our hope in him because it's not our righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You need to seek his righteousness, not your own righteousness. Seeking your own righteousness will see you come up short. Even the best things that you do will not be righteous Enough in the sight of God. Only one did that. The scripture says that he who had no sin was made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we become righteous. We seek his righteousness. We seek him first by looking to Jesus. So make your priority Jesus. Make your hope Jesus. Humbly follow him. Worship him among the people. That's what a Christian is, a Christ one. Be among his people. 
prioritize worship. And then as it says in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, seeks first his kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Things will fall into place under that. So let's be a community that seeks Jesus and loves one another together. Let's pray. Father, may we be just that. A community tightly knit together, bound to one another for the purposes of growing in Christ, seeking first His righteousness, your righteousness through Him. We pray for your grace. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.